0: One of the the main objectives of the auto company Volkswagen, which most of us have heard of, was they made it a state of objective that they wanted to be the world's largest automaker. And by 2015, in the first half of the year, they actually succeeded. And and money-wise, they were the world's largest automaker. But then, if you remember, problems started to come. You see, they realized that to, to be the world's largest, they had to be the absolute best at a few different things to find things where they dominated. And one of the things that they really tried to do, I'm not an expert on this, but I have Google and I can read, is they, they tried to, to be the world's best at clean diesel. And so that was one of the, the places that they wanted to be. There was a problem, though, in that their diesel cars were emitting 40 times the amount of nitrogen excuse me, of nitrogen oxide that their cars were allowed to. But rather than go in and fix the problem, they installed a device on the cars to just make them test better, to trick the test. And they did this to approximately 11 million cars worldwide. Over half a million cars in the U.S. had this. And about three years ago, this problem was discovered. And while they had made it to the top, this case has cost them billions and billions of dollars just in cash that they've had to pay back to settle with in dozens of governments throughout the world. In fact, this week, one of the presidents of their companies was fired as a result of this investigation that's been going on all over the world in multiple different countries across the world. They had this goal, which was a fine goal that they wanted to get to. And they decided, somehow, some people decided along the way, that they would take a whatever-it-takes attitude to get there. They would cut corners. They would do whatever it took, whether it was right or wrong, to get to what they wanted. Tonight, we're going to look at a story of people who had this attitude that they were going to do whatever it took to get what they wanted. And as we look at this story, we're going to hopefully learn some lessons from it. If you have your Bibles, if you would, please open them up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27 will be our main text for this evening. We're going to be working through, I was looking at the calendar, now basically to Christmas which I guess actually isn't that far away, which is scary, right? It is October, so Christmas really isn't that far away. But from now till Christmas, we're going to be working our way about a chapter a week through Genesis, studying the life of Jacob and Esau primarily. We've been with Isaac, and it transitions to Jacob and Esau. So we saw two weeks ago that Isaac was the son of the promise of Abraham, and God confirmed the promises given to Abraham in chapter 12 onto Isaac. And now the scene shifts back to Esau and Jacob. To remind you, they were twins, born to to Isaac and to Rebekah. But as they were born, there was a prophecy given to them in chapter 25, verse 23, which will be here on the screen. It says this, this prophecy was given. Two nations are in your womb, and two people within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And we saw Jacob stealing his birthright, the younger son, from the older brother Esau. We saw that Esau is his father's favorite, but Jacob is Rebekah's favorite. And the end of chapter 26 brings us from Isaac back into the conflict that is to come in chapter 27. In chapter 26, verse 34, it reintroduces Esau to us, and it says this. When Esau was 40 years old... He took Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It sets up the conflict that is going to come between Esau and his parents and Jacob in the next chapter. Chapter 27, verse 1 says this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son... And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Esau, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Esau is a hunter. He's, he's a hunter and a gamesman. And so his father calls him his father, being Esau's favorite, Isaac, excuse me, has Esau as his favorite, calls him and sends him out to do this so that he could give him his special blessing. It says in verse 1 that his eyes were dim. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, that's often not just used to describe someone's physical an illness, but it's also used at times to describe emotional weakness or even spiritual blindness of someone. It's also interesting in this text that we're going to see as we work through the book of Genesis that Isaac actually lives for 20 more years after this episode takes place. But one scholar writes this of Isaac's dim eyes. He says, Isaac's blindness functions at the metaphorical level for the man's spiritual condition when he preferred Esau simply for his tasty cuisine. See, Isaac knew this promise that was given to him and Rebekah, that Jacob would serve, that Jacob would be greater. But he wanted to bless Esau. And so he calls Esau and he tells him to go do this. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. It's kind of like if you remember the episode where Sarah is sitting next to the tent as Abraham is in meeting with the guests. And it says, Sarah was listening. She was eavesdropping. She was overhearing what was going on. So it is with Rebekah as Esau is called in to Isaac. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. And so Rebecca is the main schemer in this plan. If you remember, Jacob's name literally means to grasp the heel, which is a metaphor for someone who deceives, as they're characterized. He's a deceiver, but the, the main actor in this, who's pulling all the strings, working behind, isn't Jacob, but it's actually Rebecca. She overhears, and rather than just tell, she concocts right away a plan for what to do. And so she tells her favorite son, Jacob, what this plan is to carry out, to trick their father into giving the blessing to Jacob. Jacob hears this in verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold. This is behold, like we don't talk like this. Behold. In modern day vernacular, it's like this, uh, hold up. Like, hold on one second, mom. Like, um, behold, hold on. He has some questions. Behold. My brother, Esau, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and shall, be, and shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Esau is a wild man. He's a hairy man. And that's told to us before, and Jacob is not. And he's like, hey, listen, all it takes is to come up. Maybe he doesn't have a beard, and Esau does. Maybe even it's on his arm or some Like, it that, that would be easy to tell. And Jacob's like, hold up. What if I go in to get a blessing and I end up cursed, right? Like, mom, I don't want that. I don't want to leave with a curse when what I want is a blessing. Verse 13, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And so, verse 14, Jacob went. He took them and brought them to his mother, And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Jacob goes, gets the goats, and Rebecca does all the work, right? Clearly, Isaac is seen not as an intelligent, wise leader, but as a man driven by his own pleasure, right? He wants Esau to cook food like how he loves. Rebecca's like, I've been married to him a long time. I know what he loves as well, all right? I can cook this as well. She goes and she devises the plan so the food is prepared. The the garments are actually attached onto him so that he doesn't have the appearance of smooth skin anymore, but is like his brother. And she gives it to Jacob, and now it's Jacob's turn. Verse 18. So he went to his father and said, My father. Commentators point out that that cry has been noticed one time before in the book of Genesis, and it was actually Isaac when they were approaching Mount Moriah with Abraham as he was about to sacrifice his son. But rather than this time a cry of faith to his father, it's a cry of deception. My father, and he said, here I am, initially right away, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me, now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So right away, we see here that Isaac is hesitant. Who are you? And Jacob flat out lies, right? He flat out lies about who he is. So Isaac has a question for him, verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, "'How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son?' He answered, "'Because the Lord your God granted me success.'" Jacob moves from deceit and deception and lying to straight blasphemy against God and getting his scheming way to the top because this is what God has done. No, it's not. It's because of the plan you have deceived your father in doing. Then Isaac, still skeptical, verse 21, said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. I just pictured Jacob's heart starts to beat really fast. He's like, okay, mom, how close is this, right? How well does this actually work? And so he you can just, he inches closer to his father. Verse 22, Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? Jacob answered, I am. Lie again. Verse 25. Then Isaac said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine And he drank. Then his father said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So Isaac gives his blessing, thinking it's to Esau, and he gives it instead to Jacob. And in his blessing there in verses 27 to 29, we see the blessing promised in the same way that God promised a blessing to Abraham, that was passed on to Isaac, similar things are passed on as well to Jacob, signifying that these promised covenantal blessings have moved on to him as well. The promise to Abraham, which was given to Isaac, which is now transferred to Jacob, is a promise for land. A promise that he would have land, that he would dwell in that land and be prosperous in that land. That's the focus on the crops that he would have. Not only the land, but that he would become a great people, that there would be offspring and a nation would come from him. God promised that to an old man, Abraham, who had no children. And miraculously, Isaac was born to him. Now, Isaac passes that same blessing on to Jacob as well, showing Jacob walks in the lineage of Isaac and Abraham. Not only that, but blessing to the whole world. Those last two lines of verse 29 are almost identical to the original promise in Genesis chapter 12 given to Abraham. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. and Whoever curses you, I will curse. That's the same thing that is promised now to Jacob. He comes and he steals the blessing. We're going to see three principles to live by in this passage. And it's not, hey, be like Jacob. Be like Isaac in this passage. The first principle to live by is we're going to see, not just here, but throughout the really the next couple months, is this. Dishonesty isn't worth it. Dishonesty isn't worth it. See, God had made a promise. It's interesting, right, that that through all this dishonesty, somehow what God had promised comes true, But what happened is God had made a promise and Rebecca knew the promise, Jacob knew the promise, but they didn't trust that God would provide for the promise. And so they said, I know what God's will is and I'm gonna do what I want to get God's will. God had made a promise and they took it into their own hands to go out and to get it. So often in our world today, People are encouraged, and in fact, we look up to and we respect people who have gotten to a point and they've done it by any means possible. Because so often in our world, rather than value character, we value competency. And we see competent people who are skilled at their professions, who look like great parents, who have been successful by the world standards, and we think, wow, look at those people. But if you're a competent person, but underneath, you lack moral character... The question isn't if, but when you will be exposed. And Jacob might have thought that he could just get by with the skill and the creativity he had, but a lack of character was true in his life. See, our, our world actually, we, we see this idea of kind of doing whatever it takes to win mentality in all over the place. One of the the first, I actually think it is the first thing that vaulted reality TV into our popular thing is the TV show Survivor. The the show Survivor, which is on like its 20th season or something. Survivor's been on forever, I feel like. It's still on. And the show Survivor, it's not who can win at this competition, who is the best skilled at this, who can do this, who is the most honest person. Not always, but often. And I've watched one or two seasons of Survivor back when I was in college. Not always, but often, the person who wins Survivor is the best liar, the best manipulator, and the person who can play everyone. And at the end, somehow they survive. And we celebrate them for that. We're like, wow, you get a million dollars because you're the best manipulator around. (laughs) So often, that's our attitude towards life is that we can manipulate, we can play, we can work people over to our advantage. My friends, it is never God's will for you to sin to try to get his will for your life. If you think, well, God wants me to have this and I'm gonna have to cut some corners, and I'm gonna have to sin to get there, then guess what? That's not the right thing for you to do in that moment. It is never God's will for his people to live in sin trying to accomplish God's will for our lives. Dishonesty, a lack of character, isn't worth it. Jacob gets this blessing from his father. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting. It's a double emphasis. As soon as it was, when he had scarcely gone out, literally Jacob walks out and it's like the idea is literally the split second that Jacob leaves, takes the coat off, hangs it up in his brother's thing. He like walks out into his room and Esau comes back home, right? It's like if two seconds difference, he could have been caught. It's a narrow escape. Verse 31, Esau also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, he walks in, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Verse 33 says, then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it and and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. This phrase, Isaac trembled very violently, a literal translation of it would be, Jacob trembled a great trembling exceedingly. Right? He is shaking out of what has happened. He has been rocked to his core, Isaac has. Isaac has been rocked to his core as to what happens. His question is, of course, a rhetorical question. He knows now who it was. Remember, he suspected it all along. He kept saying, who are you? Let me feel you. Well, it sounds like so-and-so, but it doesn't. And so suddenly he's realized what has happened. Now Esau realized it as well. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Again, a double thing there, exceedingly great and bitter and said to his father, "Bless me, even me also, O oh my father." But Isaac said, "Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing." Esau said, "Is he not rightly named Jacob, the deceiver, the one who grabs the heel?" I'm sorry if your name's Jacob here tonight. this isn't true of your moral character necessarily. I apologize.) <laughs> Esau continues, for Jacob has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Well, if you rehash two chapters ago, did Jacob take away the birthright, or did Esau freely give it up because he was kind of being ridiculous, right? Esau freely gave it up. This is not the main point of the text, but isn't it always interesting how much better we look in our memories? How, how much better we justify our behavior when we look back? And that's exactly what Esau does here. Then he said to his father, Esau does, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He realized the gravity of what had taken place. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck." Esau's descendants become the nation of Edom, a nation who is on the outside of where the promised land is. They don't get the blessing of land promised to Jacob and to the children of Israel. They're always in enmity with Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Edom and Israel always butting heads, because it comes back to Jacob and Esau, and it's their descendants always butting heads, just as this blessing said. Verse 41 Esau has received this finally after great shaking, great tears, great weeping. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. There's times in the Bible where people kill each other and you're kind of like, whoa, that was unexpected. And one of these, I think we're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get why Esau is so upset, right? We, we get that rage that comes. Because when you and I, we maybe haven't, hopefully haven't been swindled like this, but we've each been wronged. We've each had people take advantage, manipulate the situation and push us down. And our heart's cry is, I want to get them back. A lesson that Esau needs to learn, that the Bible teaches throughout, the second point is that revenge is not right. Revenge is not right. Esau's life, as we're going to see throughout years of his life, now become on this thing of revenge. His life is consumed with anger and his thoughts seem to only go to revenge as to what happened to him. The reality, though, is we're gonna see in the life of Esau and as we look at our own lives is when we try and make others pay for wrongs done to us, we just continue to hurt ourselves. When we try and make others pay, we're just continuing to hurt ourselves. One of my favorite books that I have ever read is a classic book called The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And I don't mean like the 200-page version that you got maybe in junior high. I mean the one I think I looked on Amazon, the paperback copy, is 982 pages. It's thick, and it's an amazing story. This story, The Count of Monte Cristo, centers on a man, Edmond Dantes, who comes in, and at the beginning, life is perfect for Edmond. He comes in, he's about to get his own ship. He's engaged to a beautiful girl. Life couldn't be better for our character, Edmond. And then he's backstabbed. Someone's murdered, he's accused for the crime, evidence is falsified, and within minutes of the book reading it, suddenly he's locked away in a prison for life. In the prison, he meets a man who helps train him amongst many things, gives him a treasure map to great treasure. And he's able to escape decades later. I think it's about 15 to 20 years later. He's able to escape out of the prison. He goes, this is all like the first 50 pages of a 900-page book, so I'm not ruining anything for you, all right? Plus the story's like hundreds of years old. I'm sorry if you've never heard of it before. He escapes, becomes immeasurably wealthy. And then about 80% of the book is he goes back and he takes systematic revenge on absolutely anyone and everyone who ever wronged him. He plays people for years at a time, not just the people who wronged him, but their kids as well, and he gets back at everyone. That's the whole book, is him taking revenge. And oftentimes, our lives can seem to be like that where the consuming and motivating factor to almost everything that we do, whether we realize it or not, is revenge. My friends, if you're a Christian, this is the wrong motive to live your life by. Paul speaks these radical words in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He goes back, and this is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. I love that. There's not a lot of room when Paul makes commands. Sometimes it's not like, depending how bad it is, you shouldn't take vengeance and leave it to God. Remember the wrongs that Paul had faced in his own life. How many times he had been betrayed, hurt, backstabbed by people both inside the church and outside the church. Yet he says, never avenge yourselves. As Christians, our lives aren't to be about vengeance, but it's rather to be trusting in God. Trusting that God will ultimately punish all wrong, whether people pay for it in eternity or whether it's paid upon Jesus Christ on the cross. God is a God who will repay all evil done. We don't have to do it ourselves. Some of us are living today like Edmond Dantes, and our lives are all about seeking revenge on the people who have hurt us. Lots of times we live this way, and we don't even realize it, but we're holding bitterness and anger and resentment towards that family member, that boss, that person down the street. It could be multiple kinds of people. Friends, if you're living a life today motivated on revenge, give it to God. Trust in his promise. Live that out that we don't need to seek this out ourselves, but can trust in God instead. Esau thinks to himself, I want to kill Jacob. Verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Man, this mom knows everything. Moms always find out. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, just as you did before. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. This is slightly wishful thinking, mom, but that's okay. Then I will send you and bring you from there. Why should I be reft of both of you in one day? Commentators think that her idea being losing both of you in one day, she's thinking back to Cain and Abel, where one is murdered, the other is exiled and sent out forever. And she's like, listen, if, if you're killed, Esau is gonna be sent away and then I lose both of you. So I'm going to send you away for now. Hopefully one day you'll come back. The sad thing in this is we see whether it's misguided. So often it is, but it's a genuine love that Rebecca has for her son. This is her last interaction with Jacob in scripture. This is the last she sees. By the time Jacob comes home, Rebecca is no longer alive. Rebecca, verse 46, said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac called to Jacob and blessed him, verse chapter 28 now, and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham it's clear that Isaac is passing on the blessing of Abraham to Jacob but he's sending him out of the land just as Isaac went out of the land or was his servants were sent out to find a wife now Jacob is being sent out of the land to find a wife verse 5 thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramaean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. So he goes to live with his uncle. Verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, remember he had already married two of them, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the, sister, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. However you pronounce that name. You don't have to get into heaven to pronounce it correctly. Praise the Lord, right? So, so we, we start this passage with Esau getting married, and it ends with Esau getting married. Poor Esau tries to make up for what the wrongs he's done and he has good motives, but he ultimately is all about himself as well. He keeps getting it wrong. And there's an irony in that the outcast son now marries into the first outcast son's family. Ishmael, who was born but wasn't the child of the promise, was sent out. Esau is sent out. Now he goes and marries the daughter of the first one who was sent out as well. Esau tries, but he keeps messing up. The third thing, the third principle that we see in this passage, that we see in the life of Esau, is disappointment never excuses disobedience. Disappointment never excuses disobedience. Esau had taken a hard blow. He had been let down, yet he continued to try and be like, well, I'm going to make this up, and I'm going to do what I want, and he continues to live a way that isn't honoring and pleasing to God. Isn't it true so often that in self in suffering, it's our selfishness that tends to come out? So many times, I don't know about you, but in my life, when I've been hurt, I often use it as an excuse for bad behavior. Well, why would I be nice to them? They were mean to me. Why would I treat them with respect? Do you know what they said about me? Why would I do that? I've been hurt, I've been disappointed. Oftentimes what happens for us is we take disappointment and hurt and we start projecting what happens to us onto the future. We think, well, well, if I've been disappointed in the past, I'm just always going to be disappointed in the future. And we, start, we stop trusting and hoping and believing that God has something better for us than what we're currently experiencing. Some of us are living in sin or thinking of living into sin and we're excusing it because of the hurt and the pain that's happened in our lives. My friends, I get it. Most of you here are old enough to know life is filled with disappointments. None of us here have had it go exactly like how we have wanted. And there's been times where in our lives we've said, I just want to do something that I want to do. And we've been pushed and we've been hurt and we've been, enough, I'm going to protect myself and I'm just going to do what's right for me right now. And so often when that's our attitude, it leads us, because we've been disappointed and hurt in life, it leads us into disobedience rather than in following God. God is a God who meets us in our disappointments, and he doesn't leave us there forever. I want you to know tonight, if you're a follower of God, life may disappoint you. People may disappoint you. God never disappoint you. Life will disappoint you. Things won't go how you had it planned. People will disappoint you. Relationships will fall apart. People will hurt you. But God is a God who doesn't disappoint us. And if you've experienced disappointment due to the circumstances in life, don't lose sight of the fact that ultimately God has something even better for us. Don't allow hurt and pain And disappointment, as real as that is, don't allow it to excuse disobedience. God will use the hurts and the pains of our lives for something that none of us could have ever imagined. God, we thank you that you are a God who does not disappoint us. God, we we thank you for, for your word and we can see Stories like this of broken people, God, may it be a lesson to us, God, to want to build character in our lives, to follow you and not to try and manipulate to get our own way. God, may stories like this that are true help us to trust you more, even when we're in the confusion of life, when we're in the hurts, the disappointments. May we trust you all the more. God, we need you.